0: Hi, I'm Valent Hamvers and this is Waterproof Cover, the podcast where I meet the best cycling photographers, talk about photography, cycling, the fun times and not so fun times. In this episode, I meet with Jeff Wall. I've always found it inspiring that while most of us focus on shooting one or maybe two disciplines in cycling, he has an impressive body of work across road, mountain biking and cyclocross. He talks about the old days what it was like to work with film, and how he transitioned to digital. I love Jeff talking about his personal project, Dirty Jerseys, not only because of his obvious enthusiasm about it, but also the little fanboy in me just can't wait to see the result. So sit back and enjoy. This is Jeff Wall.
1: I remember the first time I met you was probably one of the Evans photo shoots, but the first time we had a coffee, I think it was a dinner in um, Offenburg... The mountain bike World Cup Offenburg, in Germany. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, just across the border from France, isn't it? Because I, I remember I flew to to Strasbourg, I think, and drove over the border. That's right. And uh, I probably was shooting there for Trek World Racing. I was, I was on the uh, the circuit for them because they had uh, the the Flukiger brothers and Emily Batty and probably others that I can't actually remember. But they were their main main contenders so I was on the on the circuit doing that which is fun yeah really good
1: how did you get into mountain biking
2: I think because um, because I'm of a vintage where there were no mountain bikes in the UK and we always wanted to ride off-road and people used to make bikes called trackers which were basically 23 inch frame bikes and you went to the bike shop and you bought cowhorn handlebars and you put uh, slightly bigger tyres on, and that became uh, a bike to ride off-road with. So it was really like a weird hybrid of a, of, of a mountain bike and a cruiser and, and a cross bike, kind of. Yeah, and you just ride the around the around, you know, those. And, and, they, and they, were, they were like um, multi-discipline bikes, but we never saw them like that. It's just you had one bike and that's, that's what we used it for. You know, they might have had those funny little uh, half-mudguards, Little aluminium half mud guards. I never had full mud guards, as far as I remember. But um, yeah, I mean that's how I got into it. And then, uh, then I started working uh, as a journalist at IPC magazines. And there was an Evans Cycles just down the road, and I wandered in one day, and there was a row of muddy fox mountain bikes, and I just looked at them and said, "That is the bike that I've been waiting for. Someone to invent." for years and i just bought one and and it went from there because as soon as i got one i wanted to see other people who got uh, mountain bikes you know i'd already sort of started looking into it and um you know i'd already i'd already i guess start to to buy mountain bike action magazine seeing all these great bikes coming out of california and the uh, the irony now is that, that if i had that bike that i first bought now it'd be worth quite a lot of quite a lot of money i think you know because they were sort of the, the yuppie mountain bike of the UK, because actually they, on the streets of London they were pretty common, but actually off-road you didn't sit, see many because it was, it was people in town that bought them, and they were almost advertised that way, you know. They, they had the uh, the poor trademark, and they had that on a disc wheel, and they're advertising that they had these you know um, couriers on the streets with these Muddy Foxes. But they, I had a Muddy Fox courier, funnily enough. Um, and it was great. I mean, I, I commuted on it. I used to go over to a place called... Um, Channels, I think. Channels Windsurf Centre out in Essex, and you know, no helmet. No, I don't think anyone wore helmet, and just bomb around. You know, typical thing. You, you get a mountain bike, you find a gravel pit or a bomb hole, and you try to ride down the steepest thing you can until you fall off. You know, and and you do fall off, and then it 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 spiraled from there. Honestly, um, then I got an interest in. No, actually, no. I, I mean that that year it was like a nineteen eighty seven. It was a, an amazing Tour de France. Stephen Roach was my hero because he won the World Champs, the Tour de France, and the Giro. So I was already watching a bit of road racing, and I, and and then I started sort of getting into to cycling in a much bigger way when it was generally very small compared to how it is now in popularity. Um, and I think that's when the the mountain bike thing was so exciting because everyone just bought these bikes, they went, you know, these big fat tired bikes and and um you know started doing extreme things i suppose the extreme label came probably in the 90s that was more of a uh, like like an mtv type thing you know um and i can't for the life of me what remember what i did with the muddy fox i probably sold it i know that i changed it so it, it wouldn't have been in its original its original state for resale um no, I can't remember. I can't remember the next bike I had. It could be, actually, that I started to get into shooting mountain bike races and eventually shooting mountain bike races and tests for uh, magazines. And then I'm, I, I'm pretty sure a few bikes came my way. So I don't, I don't think... I can't remember a, a bike I actually bought after the Muddy Fox. I did buy bikes. I just can't remember. I can remember one. I, I bought a Fose LTS... Long travel system from Brent Foes, because I've been to Interbike and I'd seen Brent Foes and I really like this bike. It's an amazing looking bike and it had six inches of suspension travel at the back, but you couldn't get a suspension fork to match the back. I think the longest travel you could get was a three-inch travel fork, so it was horrendously you know, um, out of balance. But it looked fantastic, so I didn't really care. You know, it's like, it, was, it was the bike. I had bikes in between then, actually. I think I, I had a, a Marin. Bear Valley which that's the bike that I actually raced uh, did my first my first proper race I guess on that and then I raced lots of Essex winter series you know in, in horrendous snow and ice and mud and I actually loved it because I really like cold weather I really like it that a lot of people g- gave up and I don't know I've got this thing about just just I don't, I don't really suffer that much from cold so I really love doing the Essex winter series um, and I was, I was taking pictures at the same time, and I think sometimes, that, that, you know, maybe I should have ridden less and taken more pictures, but that's, that's how it was, you know. I was, I was like, a, I was always a journalist, but then I became a mountain biker, I guess, yeah. But at that time, you know, it was, it was very split. It was very sort of, um, I'm a mountain biker. I've got hairy legs. You know, you're a road guy. Uh, I think they used to call them roadie stiff-backs because they were always doing this time trial and then they had a hump on their back from doing their time trial position. Um, you know, they, I don't think there's much of that anymore. I don't hear much anymore, but certainly at that time, I think that was because they, they said, oh, mountain bikes will never catch on. It's an overgrown BMX. Well, actually, it caught on in such a way that a few companies missed the boat, certainly in the UK. You know, they, they just never caught up, you know, which is interesting. And I don't you know I don't, they will, never will catch up. Yeah. It's done. Yeah. Naming no names. But we know who they are. Anyway. Yeah.
1: So you talked about your times at IPC. Mm. If you can you go back to, to the time how you started yeah. how you became a photographer, yeah. what what did you do before that? So yeah, just, just tell me about that.
2: Right. Um Well, I when I was at school, I was I was good at art, and that was my my, my strongest subject, and um, I was always into drawing and painting. And I left school, and I went to art college, and I and I wanted to draw and paint, but you, you know they said, well, the only thing you can do with that is to be a fine artist. But the, the only fine artists I knew that had jobs were teachers, and I didn't want to be a teacher. There's no way that I could be a teacher. Um, and concurrently I was drumming in a band and the band happened to sign a record deal with Epic Records and we recorded a single um, which sold about 15,000 at the time it was, getting, it was getting airplay every day for about a week on Radio 1 and I really thought this is it I'm, I'm set up for life now of course the fickle public didn't buy any more and so I had to find a job and um, I thought well, what, do I, what, what am I good at I thought I, art that's what I can do and I, I, English, I'm, I'm reasonable at English, you know, and at the time I'm really, I was really into angling, and so I just wrote letters to all the angling magazines, eventually I got a phone call from one of them, just up the road here from where we are, said could you come in, and uh, I did this interview, and they said well we don't really need any artists, you know, but if you can write and prove yourself, we'll take you on, so I got a job there, and then the, the, the first thing they did, is they showed me this filing cabinet full of Nikon, FMs, I think they were, FM, yeah, FM cameras really nice cameras and they said part of being a cub reporter is you have to go out and take pictures and I really loved it I loved the fact that you know you could take a picture and it's much quicker than than uh, interviewing a guy and, and and then writing you know 8,000 words and filing them back to a news desk with a picture it's like bang and it's done it's, it's such a good feeling and I just kept going and that, that interest the, the, the photography side of it seemed to take over and it and, Inevitably, I started photographing different things outside of fishing. Basically, I think anything, people get a camera and they they photograph everything, and then they tend to zone down and specialise. And and it's sort of quite hard to open it out and get that back again. Uh, But I used to, I remember I used to take my rolls of film in on the Monday, I think it was, and then there'd be, uh, I don't know, you know, 20 frames of fishing, and then the rest would be something I'd done. and Because it, it was all in the same role, it would go to the developing house and come back on a can- contact sheet and I'd just mark up the prints that I wanted for myself, you know, just skimming off my little perk of the job. Um, mostly we shot on black and white. If there was any cover or anything like that involved, it was always um, transparency film. So I think that using a manual camera and shooting on transparency film was a, like a really good grounding for... For learning how the light works and how your camera meter works, you know, um, things that aren't, well, they are important now, but not essential, you know. But with a tranny, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a one shot deal almost, you know, you can't change that. And from there, I worked until I just couldn't face it anymore. You know, I, I sort of got bored of the, I was a pretty active guy. And, and you know, and I just thought, these fishermen, are pretty sedentary. I, I don't really want to do this anymore. And the, um, the magazine was on the same floor as uh, NME. And I was really into music. I thought, my image, this image is wrong. They say, well, you work on a fishing mag. Because I didn't look like, you know, I, wasn't wearing, I didn't go and work in waders. I don't know what a fisherman's meant to look like, but I didn't look like one, you know. And I just thought, this is wrong. I need to, I need to do something different. And I was in the canteen at IPC with the, the, art, the art editor of Melody Maker, and I said, I'm thinking of doing a photojournalist course at the, the LCP. And he said, well, why bother? Just get a camera and go out and, and do it. And I said, that's really good advice, and that's what happened. You know, I, I left my resignation on the answer phone at the magazine and then went out and, and started taking pictures, and, and I built up. I, I wangled my way into... Then it was... I, I, I decided I was going to be a sports photographer, and um, yeah, I mean, I was living in North London, so I wangled my way into Arsenal, into Tottenham, until I, and, and various places where it was a lot easier to get accreditation then. Um, and I started shooting some black and white stuff for the Hampstead and Highgate Express, which is quite a, quite a big paper in North London, but they don't—they still expect you to, to do it for the love of it. But it was a a, a kind of apprenticeship, I guess. But it actually allowed me to build this portfolio, and I and I went round to the Sun, and I went to the Observer, and went to the Guardian. And and then eventually I started doing shifts, and, and shooting, you know, football, and sitting there and in all weathers. Uh, you know, uh, which I, I wasn't really into football in a big way, and most of the guys are, the same way that we're into cycling. So I used to sit there, you know, in, in a howling gale, or in the snow, thinking why am I doing this? I know mean, it's, it's good, it's great to have a your picture with your name in, a, in a, you know, a national newspaper but I'm not really enjoying it anymore what can, I, you know, what can I do? And I'm pretty sure it was the Milk Race or the Kellogg's Tour of Britain the last stage was here it went along Southwark Street across Blackfriars Bridge along the Strand and then round Westminster somewhere And I figured out this place where I could get from working at IPC on a balcony. And as they turned into Blackfriars, to the bridge approach, I shot a reflection of the riders in this great big mirrored building. So it looked like the hall of mirrors. There were, you know, skinny calves, fat arms and all sorts. It looked really weird. Anyway, I sold it to Bicycle Action magazine. I thought, okay, yeah, maybe I'll be a cycling photographer. And that's where it went. And And I sort of moved... You know, moved into that. It was more colourful. There was more action. It was quite. Um, you know, bearing in mind that angling's supposedly the number one participation sport. Cycling was very, very sort of niche because it's not. Well, it is a participation sport, but at that level, not everyone could participate. It's actually a lot harder work than sitting on a riverbank. And uh, and I, I was sort of hooked on it. You know, being around. The cars and the teams, when they were signing on and, you know, um, coming to the start line, I just thought sort of was fantastic. I was, I was totally hooked, you know, I went up and down the country. I'd I, I take my cameras and just jump on a coach to get to Edinburgh, you know, just, just to shoot the start and then go cross-country somewhere else, jump in the press van. Um, and I did a lot of that, I think, until the first Tour of France, I think, was 1993, and we did about three of the mountain stages. Uh, and I was with a photographer called Mark Wallander, who was really good, but he's sort of... Well, he's disappeared from cycling photography. He became a car photographer. I think he crashed a Porsche. And I don't think it did his mind any good, so I, I don't know what he does. But anyway, me and him, hired a, we, we flew to Paris, hired a GTI and, and drove to the mountains. So it was like, you know, it, it was like photographers on tour. So we had a press pass in the car, there's no roadblocks. So we were just ragging this GTI around. It's just the best, it's like a holiday really. A holiday with some photography. Um, and I've never been to the Tour de France before, so for me to see you know, Miguel Indurain and Delgado and all those guys, this is sort of, whoa, this is this is like, I can't get any higher than this. This is the pinnacle of the sport. But I was still like a slight fanboy. And I was driving, we'd come to the bottom of a climb. I think it was the, the Col de la Bonnet, I think, which is the really high climb. And um, somehow we got stuck in with the, tow- with the, yeah, with the bus, I think it was the tail enders. And Phil Anderson was there. And I just, I just leant out. And I came over all fanboy. I said, yeah, come on, Phil. And he just looked at me and he gave me these daggers and he just went, yeah, right. Like that. I just I just could die, you know. Things like that. I mean, Mark ended up sleeping upright in a wardrobe at one place because we didn't have anywhere booked, you know, and, and trying to get a place in a Tour de France village is ridiculous, but we managed to find a place. We, didn't, we never slept in the car. Um, we just found places by chance, and, and I think because Mark spoke some French, you know, we ended up doing, doing that. But then that was probably the only one I did until a lot later because then I concentrated on, um, on the World Cup's, Mountain bike World Cups, so cross country and downhill, mostly cross country then, because that was the you know the uh, so-called golden era of XC racing. You know, going to Plymouth, that was '93 as well. Uh, again, seeing you know John Tomac and Ned Overend and these guys that you'd only seen in magazines. You know, and I can remember even John Tomac. I mean, I I couldn't get a good picture of John Tomac. I got so excited when he, when he appeared that I just couldn't frame him properly. Everyone else was perfect. But I was like, it's John Tomac, I must get a picture. And the pressure to get a good picture meant I never got a good picture, you know, which I really regret because, you know, you don't get too many chances unless you're following every single race, you know, like embedded in it. And, and certainly I didn't have the money to, to do the, you know, the North American rounds or anything like that. Yeah. So there you go.
1: So for all the photographers I know, I think you are the only one who does more than one discipline in cycling. Yeah. Um, Some people do too. Mm. I do cross and road, but you do cross, Mm. road and mountain bike. And they all seem to be more or less balanced, or at least you do a fair amount. Yeah. Uh, of all of them, and you, you you are published in all of these disciplines. So yeah. where does this versatility come from? What, how 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 come? The, and how come you're the only one, or like uh, w- probably well, one of the very few who who yeah. who
2: yeah. in all three? I think that is the right word. I think I'm not sure if that's a good thing. Actually, thinking about that, the more I thought that maybe actually I should concentrate on one and actually you know focus on one. But I can't because I like I like all of them. You know, cyclocross is I want to say it's close to mountain biking. It's close, obviously closer than than road riding, and it's and it's it's like the freak in between the two, which I really enjoy because it doesn't make any sense to me to ride a bike like that off road. But then you know that some of the courses of both both mountain biking and cyclocross course is now so different that it is separate. But um, I think really it's more about um, I've I've sort of followed the business. You know, I was shooting mountain biking and then road racing road riding actually not just racing it just it just you could see it was growing so much and I thought well I've you know I've shot it before I know I know what to do I know how to make it look nice so why shouldn't I go and do that you know um, and the rise of the sportif. you know I was constantly getting out to, short, to shoot sportifs. and to be honest it's, 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 it's easy but it's not difficult um, to make it look attractive which is what I'm there for you know uh mountain biking i'd say is all about i think with mountain biking it it used to be that you could shoot a piece of trail or single track with no rider in such a way that that if you did the sport and you understood it that would be evocative that someone would see it and say i'd love to ride that and and that means your job's done actually now that's happened to road riding you know in the last what five ten years people have started taking pictures of Air pins with no row riders on with no riders or, or um, you know the um, the Amber Trench with no riders on and it's become a, th- a thing you know I'm not sure you can actually do that with cyclocross well you could I suppose yeah but but there's so many barriers and, and tape and things it's not it's not quite as picturesque as those the, the other two um, so that's 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 quite a strange thing that's happened where and in fact I think Mavic were one of the first ones to start doing that. They started running pictures of cobbles to, to advertise their wheels, you know, without any, any rider on. I mean, I love it. I think it's great. And, all, and, and I guess, you know, certain magazines might have something to do with that too. Um, a, a general look. Uh, but but I, I'm, I'm now looking at getting in, back into mountain biking a bit more, you know. Um, but there, there's no way that'll turn down road commission. I won't turn down any commission, you know, if, if it's good, but, but um, I get sort of get fired up by what I ride as well, you know, I might go on a mountain bike and do a really nice ride somewhere and go, oh, I need to go and photograph this a bit more, you know, um, and that's what's been happening recently. You know, I've been going on my, my mountain bike a lot more and thinking, there's some really nice places, you know, I need to go and visit these places in the right conditions and make some pictures. Also, I think with mountain biking, there's a lot more where you can actually take riders non-racers just riders to fantastic places and shoot pictures that have a longer shelf life than a road race you know you can and, and they can actually be sold for different things you know stock pictures that will sell because there's no number boards they'll sell I don't know to advertise the lifestyle a lifestyle whatever that might be compared to say a Tour de France which really becomes it's a news based thing which will get dug up maybe 20 years later when someone does not know a piece about an old rider you know it's, it's those sort of things as I'm finding now with my mountain bike archive you know there's people who don't know who half these people are and they're really interested to see it. and the bikes you know that freaks them out when they see the bikes you know it's like who would ride that well that's all we had you know that's what people rode so that's quite that's Um, encouraging and actually it's quite nice to see the effect those things have on people you know if I'd known if because I don't really look very far down the road but if I'd known you know I'd have looked after some of my transparencies more (laughs) Uh, I'd I'd probably have a bigger archive than I have now but you know the 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 project the, the dirty jerseys project I'm doing now you know I'll put a jersey up on Instagram and people love it because it 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 either reminds them of their favourite rider or a team they used to ride for, definitely of a certain era, and if they don't know about it, then hopefully they'll go out and find about it, and it, hopefully you know, they'll want to be more interested in the book to find about more jerseys. We'll see how that goes, yeah. But, uh, I, don't, I, you know, I don't feel guilty at all for shooting the three disciplines. I mean, I'd shoot indoor cycling if someone asked me to do it, and I actually think that's quite a weird funny little thing that I've I've thought about going to do you know but that would have to be a commission I'm not going to go out there and you know it's it's like a it's it's big on mainland Europe but it's a bit of a backwater isn't it It, I mean it's amazing the skills are amazing that you know and 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 maybe you could shoot I don't know if they've got a specialist guy that does indoor cycling I'm sure they have I looked at it once I thought there's there's a feature here you know these things this thing's quite weird for us but I've never I've never got around to it you know it may happen. Then I'll become, like, you know, known as a, an indoor cycling guy. <laughs> I don't know how long this <laughs> season runs. <laughs> I think it goes over... I think it's a winter thing. Mm-hmm. I think so. Do you know? No, I, uh, just, I just sometimes I I look it at these...
1: Uh, no, it, like, like, cycling like. is sign in Hungary, but it just sometimes you look at these photos from these races, oh. and they're, like, the things they do, like, with the bikes, it's just, like... It's phenomenal. How is that,
2: how is that even physically possible? Yeah, yeah. You ask. Oh, and they do the football on those fixies. It's, the skills are f- phenomenal, you know. Um, it's, it's a niche within a niche, isn't it, you know. You know I'm, I'm gonna fit strobes in the ceiling and I'm gonna shoot it properly. But then your market is not very big, you know. It's like, unless you have some sort of website dedicated to indoor cycling, and I'm sure there is. I'm pretty sure there is, I've just never found it yet. You Wanna know? hunt to find the number one indoor cycling photographer. But I think in Switzerland, Germany, places like that, it's it's pretty big. Yeah, it's just uh, not big enough to get me on a plane yet to go and take a picture of it. It's definitely a UCI sport, though. Yeah. it's a UCI recognised um, discipline. Yeah.
1: Um. When I started photography, I started with film, so I'm old enough to have. Well, it was obviously just film at the time, and then around hmm. I think two thousand two or three, I switched into digital still as a hobbyist and now I'm kind of playing with film every now and again mm. but you spent a fair amount of your career yeah. in, the, in the film kind of realm yeah. what was it like what was working with film like um, what happened during the transition like how did when, when and how did you make the transition and, and how how do you feel now about Ooh. you know the digital dark room and things like yeah. that
2: uh. When I started, everyone that I knew shot on Kodak Tri-X, which is the recognised press film. You know, because it was so um, it was so sort of compliant. You could push it. You know, you used to shoot football and push it to 3,200 ISO to shoot floodlit games, so you could freeze the action. Um, and I loved it, and I still do like it. And then, and then with the uh, transparency, I think. I think the magazine I worked for had Kodak Ektachrome, which I believe Kodak are going to make again. That's what I've read. That's interesting. It was quite blue. I, I actually preferred, uh, when, as soon as Fuji came out f- with Velvia, as soon as Fuji, Fuji Velvia 50 came out, all the sports guys went to that because it was, it was almost like the HD of its day the colours were super saturated so if you're shooting surfing, windsurfing anything with the fluorescent colours blue sky, blue uh, blue ocean they were, you know it's punchy and, and, and packed with, um, with colour so we all used that and I used to, if it was a really sunny day really quite rare here but I used to expose it at 40 um, ISO or push it to 80 one, one stop and expose it like that and uh, you know, the results are phenomenal. And even now, you know, I look at them on a light box and it's, uh, it does blow you away, you know, because you've got that light shining through the back of it. It still is really nice. And then to shoot that on a, on a bigger format, I used to have a Bronica. It was quite a thing amongst the cycling photographers. Graham Watson had this setup. Phil O'Connor had this set up. We had a Bronica ETRS um, 645 camera and a Metz Hammerhead flash. So, uh, you know, the the fill-in flash, the quality, the transparency, razor sharp, you know, and and you imagine an art editor sees that on the lightbox. It's starting to sell itself in a way. Uh, Things things that are easier in digital are definitely um, archiving, keywording, you know, all those things that you can almost do automatically now. Whereas before you'd have to cut cut the slides, mount the slides, scan the slides, and then put some sort of uh, you know um, cross-reference, and file numbers and things like that on them. You know you you need to really have someone to do that for you, and you know that you know you, you can't afford those sort of luxuries. You know you're basically one man band. Most people were. Uh, Malcolm Fearon, I remember, had a guy that worked for him. Malcolm. You know, was the mountain bike race photographer. I think in the '90s, and certainly he used to fly back from a race, and uh, he had an office in Victoria, so he'd he duplicate all the trannies and send them out. And to me, that's like the, this is a business. Yours is a business. You know, I'm just playing around compared to you, Malcolm. You know, and I still think that. Actually, but it actually made us sort of think. Well, we're not treating this as professionally as we could. Um, the film thing now, I still. I mean, I've got a little film compact in my bag now. So, uh, I still love the whole process of shooting film, loading film, unloading film, having to take it somewhere, or these days, posting it somewhere to be developed. And, and I don't bother with, you know, a, a wet dark room or anything like that. I don't want to do that at all. But, you know, to get the negatives or the uh, the transparency scan and sent back on a CD that's great, You know, I love it because um, basically you're just getting a, a digital thing back anyway so it's all the bit that goes before that which is the enjoyable part um, I have found myself guilty now of uh, putting the camera on motor drive and leaving my finger down too long and I actually notice that now I think why, why, do, why do I do this, I never used to do this and it's and it's a sort of habit where part of me doesn't want to miss anything, but all, also, there's also that these are free. I can shoot ten, you know, in a second and don't have to pay really for those. Whereas ten frames on a 36 roll, you know, you you have you haven't got many left for the rest of the action. So you really had to think about the overheads, you know, because it was probably. Six quid maybe for a roll of film, then another six to get them developed, and you know that mounts up. I mean, you know, back in the day you could charge the the magazine for that, and I do charge now still for digital processing for the time, purely because that that pays for the equipment you know um, that you use, computers etc. But certainly I've had publishers that say, but. That's invisible, I've got a camera. I've got a digital camera. I just delete the card and start again. So yeah, but you're a publisher, you know? You're just, it's your hobby. So there's a lot of sort of corners cut in that respect. Digital processing, I, I am quite guilty. I, I do quite, I don't, um, I don't use Photoshop. I haven't used Photoshop for a long time. So I do everything in Lightroom and then it, uh, you know, I export it and then that's it done. Uh, and, I, and I am a sucker for some filters and presets. You know, hands in the air, love it. I think everyone loves it, to be honest. You know, a vignette, anything like that, it's great. You can do the things that now that you'd probably had to have a team of retouchers to do if you shot it on a negative. You know, in the past, um, and you know that all photographers like to do their own thing. You know, um, just to keep it all under control, so it comes out from you. You know. Conversely, I wouldn't print my own black and white or my own prints because I think that is a is a skilled job. <laughs> that sounds that sounds bad, but I, but I never print my own. I always, if I want to print for my portfolio, I'd let someone whose job it is to do that. Ironically, that, that when I process my own raw files you know I can do that, so I don't send them out for retouching or anything like that. They don't really need retouching, to be honest. It, you know, in cycling, you don't. You might clone dust spots out or anything like that. I don't do any major retouching or anything like that, no. Um, part of me has still got a, a foot in the press camp, so I do try to adhere as much as I can to the sort of original darkroom rules, inverted commas rules. But I realise it doesn't make much sense because, you know, I know people who, who um sorry, what were these rules for the well, uninitiated? You know, unwritten rules. I mean say you will get a guy who manipulates a picture that he that might get published in a newspaper or it might win a prize in a you know, in a world press photo competition. Well, that's that's bending the story. If you're a photojournalist, you know, it it surely it has to be 100% the truth, as you saw it. So, um, I think the traditional rules were things that you would do in a dark room, like dodging, burning, um, you know, vignettes, and, and things like that. Uh, anything else, like you know, removing a, I don't know, a signpost or something, then mm, that's starting to get near the limits. But I do realise now that actually if, if you 're in in any field that that the rules are pretty much forgotten, you know I mean some of the pictures you see, actually the pro- my problem is now some of the pictures i can 't believe, and I think that 's everyone 's problem. You see things and you think actually that's not, it doesn 't look quite right anymore, and you 've got this whole thing with ultra HD on TV and I look at it and I think well actually that doesn 't look it doesn 't look real anymore it 's not how I actually see things, so what what am I what what am I meant to be seeing I don't understand my eyes see things outside that aren't ultra HD you know Um, and everyone is a part of that now you can't you know we can't escape that Um, and that will just keep I want to say progressing I'll say that will keep changing because it you know it's not necessarily progress Uh, it's interesting though you know I mean you know, um, you've done a podcast with Benedict. You know, Benedict shoots for Rolls-Royce. Car photography, it's not the same as press photography. You know, you, your job is to make them look as, as nice and attractive as they as you can. Uh, with cycling, I think, you know, I, it, for me, it's, it, I go as far as filters and nice presets and things like that. that that's where the, the line is drawn. Yeah. But certainly, I mean, there, I know that there are... People who you know do comps—they'll comp a picture, you know, uh, onto a background and things like that. But that's more—it's uh, uh, like editorial to me. That's more advertising photography, you know, um, than pure reportage. But the lines are getting so blurred now; it, it's really hard to tell anymore. You know, I just think that i, I do my thing, and I have a certain set of. My own sort of rules, oh, you know no, no. Um, that I apply then everything else is out of my control, so i don 't really bother about it too much uh, certainly in in bike racing fields it's pretty straight down the line, I think you know cycle across i mean also that the deadlines that some people have if they 're shooting uh, races as news they don 't have time to do those those manipulation things, do they you know you can 't you can't s- start, you know, changing a guy's kit or, or wheel decals because it's got to be there. It's got to be online, you know, within seconds after you've pressed the button. So, yeah. Oh. I don't know. It's, it's just a bit funny the way things have changed like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm sort of neutral, really. I, what I don't want to do is sound like an old whinger. <laughs> that is much better when we were shooting film. It wasn't better, it was just different. You know, the point is that it's still a box. It still records light. It still records. You know, uh, it's, the composition is up to the photographer. How he works with the light is up photographer. So, the medium really doesn't really matter. And film for me is another way. Is a way of retaining my interest out of the digital. I guess is is a work thing. The film is a hobbyist, inspirational, motivational thing. You know, I mean, I've got a Hasselblad medium format, and, and I love using that thing, you know. And people who don't know what they are, that, you know, they, they, they recoil when you pull a camera like that out. Why is that? What does that do? It just takes pictures, you know. Well, can I see them? Yeah, in two weeks, you know, if you're still around. But you can't look at the back because you won't see anything, you know, which is quite nice. It's, it's quite nice to have that... Um, that slight feeling that that you may have got it you may not have got it you know you don't know you never knew really if it was going to be pin sharp some of these things like a sprint you know especially before focus you know when you're using um follow focus and pre-focus then it sort of you know you you, you could see it as the mirror was going up and down but you never really knew until you put the loop to the to the light box you know um which is good because it, it also uh, that, that is an indication of, of sort of skill as well. You know, it's like I've, I've actually got that, you know. I mean, conversely, you could think you've got it and then it's soft and it's really disappointing. It's like, oh shit, you know. I mean, it's not that you're meant to do it, it's just you, know, you had no say in it. What doesn't happen with digital, which has happened to me with film, is your camera won't let you shoot if you've got the warning on without a card in it. But my cameras will shoot without filming. And I've, I've, I've lined up, you know, with a 300 lens and a, an F3 camera body, which, I don't know, that, that shot over six frames a second, to shoot the, the finished sprint and just, you know, machine gun the finish. a whole sequence of this guy crossing the line. I thought, that's so good. And then I'm in the back and there's no film in there. You know, and and I can safely say... That if a photographer tells you that he's never done that, then he's not telling the truth. Because sometimes the pressure, you know, it gets, you just get get so embroiled in it that it's quite easy to do. I've opened the back with with the film, you know, um, still in there, not wound off. I've actually done that before. I did a shoot for Loaded magazine. Uh, We actually went to Cornwall to search for giants and pixies. And we ended up in this funny little... um, victorian taxidermy museum and there was a, a cricket game and the players were actually stuffed kittens <laughs> they were set up in this 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 uh, cricket pitch and the guys it loaded they're a bit weird and they said i'll take a picture of that jeff that would look really good so i took a picture and i opened the camera i thought i'd finished the roll, and i quickly closed it didn't they didn't see i didn't say anything actually when the film was developed it actually added to the picture yeah. and they said they ran it as a double page spread i said that's amazing you know I said yeah it's pretty good isn't it i think really don't ask me to do that again because i can't repeat that that's one of those weird vagaries of you know i guess it's like the um the filmers do that light thing don't they and they take mm-hmm. the lens take the lens off that was that was the uh, the equivalent of that you know i just i just thought yeah yeah of course yeah i meant to do that that was lucky, you know. Th- th- things like that doesn't happen in digital. Mm. I can't think of any that have happened like that. The, the worst thing is you might, um, you know, erase a card by mistake, delete a card, mm. or whatever. You still have to be very, very sort of calm and, and together, don't you, to, to, um, to make sure you've covered every base. You know, you've got these backups and things like that. So that, I guess that hasn't changed. And again, you know, I used to watch Malcolm, and I'd see his roles of films, like in, developed, out, you know, look at the- you're so you're so together. You're going to make a lovely husband for someone. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Uh,
1: yeah. How was from a from a business perspective? How did the switch from film to to digital happen? Uh,
2: when did you feel that you can? When did you? I f- started, I guess, in the early 2000s, the nineties, I think. Can't remember the exact year. I can remember buying a a compact first and going to a bike show and thinking I can shoot this on this camera and I can email them to a magazine. And the magazine was very impressed because the quality was pretty rubbish. And it went from there to me buying um, a DSLR. But I was still... The DSLRs had terrible back focus problems. So I'd take a film body and a digital body... And depending on who the rider was, I decide do I want it, do I want it to, to gamble on it shooting through or do I want to actually nail him with the, with the film? Um, that probably actually would have been yeah, I can remember doing that at Caprun so maybe 2002 i don 't know two thousand yeah maybe two thousand three um, and you know, I had I had 100% confidence in the films, 50% in the digital, and eventually they got better. I think I had a Nikon D2H, I think it was. That was four megapixels, you know, four. And then I had a D70, I think, because the D70 was the first one with the video capability. But the D70, and I'd always get people saying, you know, can you blow, can you make a poster with that? I said, yeah, you can. It's no problem. And, I, and I'd, sh- I'd actually shot a poster that appeared um, as a cover-mounted gift, you know, on a, on a six-megapixel camera. So I never had a problem with, um, as, I think, as long as the people at, at the end, the printer's end, knew what they were doing, I knew they'd get a decent result. Um, certainly our editors used to say, oh, you know, can you, can you get that any bigger? Can you send us any bigger? I said, I can't. This is, the, the camera only goes to this, you know. Uh, and then they start asking for raw files. I think business wise, the biggest hurdle is the price of digital gear because it, the price and the longevity. Because my, my Nikon F5s, film bodies, which are the last ones I used, are probably still going somewhere. Probably. And if they'd be looked after, I'd say definitely still going somewhere. They were amazingly good cameras, you know, uh, but obviously they're obsolete now. Um, I paid, I think, probably 1700 per body when I bought two bodies when I bought the F5s. Well, you can't buy one top pro-spec digital body for that. So there was that expense. Not, so not only did you have to have, you know, a, a digital SLR, top spec or high spec, and then you know, no photographer likes to go out with one body because it might break or get full of water or whatever. So you want a backup, so that's two. And then, you know, all the lenses fitted up to a point because you had the DX um, crop. So some lenses had to replace with the DX lenses. And then the, the extra part was, of course, the computer equipment at home. So that added quite a lot of extra expense. And then there's the fact that, you know, every two years they'd bring a new one out and you felt... You felt like you couldn't take pictures without it. But I think actually now that's levelled off completely. In my opinion, it has. The stuff that I've got now is not the most current uh, gear, but I don't really think it makes any difference to me personally. That's because I haven't used the newest gear. It might be amazing, I don't know. But sometimes I look back through my files and I think, oh, I took that on a D70. The colour looks really nice on that one, you know. It's, It's a really, like, different... It's got a different feel to the ones I shoot with now. Um... You know, I didn't have a problem with using the DX crop cameras because uh, when people were saying, oh, you know, you want full frame, I said, yeah, but if you're an alien that's full from space and you don't know anything about photography, why, why would a DX, why would a crop frame hold you back any? You wouldn't know any better. You'd be okay, you know. So we still had this weird thing where you'd shoot on a, a full frame digital camera and people say, get a 10 eight print, inches. Well, the, the, the ratios don't fit anyway, you know, and, it, and it, to me, it's like the, the tradition, the 35mm tradition. They wouldn't let go of that. That became entangled with the digital format. You know, uh, you know, some of the cameras now, you know, they, they shoot 16:9 ratios and whatever you want them to do. But uh, I mean, now my cameras are full frame. You know? uh, I never had an issue, and I never, I never had any of my clients say, what camera do you use? What crop do you use? They just don't say that. I think it's more about, you know, uh, um, pixel peepers, as we call them, you know, who, who read all the specs and make up their mind like that rather than in the real world taking pictures. Yeah. Uh, but I'd say my, my, my gear's starting to, you know, reach the end of its... Probably it's got another year and I will actually have to uh, upgrade into these latest ones. But it hurts. It's a lot of money, you know. Yeah.
1: You briefly talked about your uh, Jersey project. Mm. Tell me more about it. How? Where did the idea come from? What is it about?
2: Mm. Where it's going to go? All right. the, the jerseys project is called Dirty Jerseys. It's about... Um, Mountain bike jerseys their their design their the artwork uh, from well it started off with traditional uh, what i call cross country jerseys, which are short sleeve jerseys because in that time that's all that was available because it had spilled over from the road that was traditional lycra uh, clothing. then I went to Italy two years ago, and I was trying to i was talking to this guy who had a yeti about John tomac and he said. I don't know, who, who is John Tomac? And I went, oh, of course, there's some people that don't know who these guys are, and there's no reason why they should. I need to open this thing right out. So, so the Dirty Jerseys now is everything from the... Um, and, sorry, I'll just go back. It will be a book about um, classic jerseys. The, the idea is that it will be a jersey worn by a certain rider, and what happened the day the race that they wore that jersey... There'll be a story um, about that with other details from sponsors or other riders. Um, you know, a, a book of short stories, basically. Um, in theory, interesting stories. Um, and there'll be groups of... I mean, some of the jerseys are whole groups, so there'll be a spread of different uh, the different uh, progression through the jersey design, etc. Um, and it goes far far back as... The earliest one I've got is Ned Overend the USA World Championship winning jersey because pre-1990 there was a World Championship in USA and a World Championship in Europe. Um, And I've got Tim Gould Hill Climb World Championship jersey, which, you know, they don't do that anymore. I just think the the World Championship was a good thing to tag on for the winner. Uh, Right up to now to uh, Rachel Atherton's jersey from her amazing season in 2016. I've got Bernard Kerr's jersey when he won the Red Bull Hardline. Um, There'll be a, a feature about skin suits because everyone mocks skin suits and I've got some in my eyes amazing, in a lot of people's eyes hideous skin Lycra skin suits, you know, which were but they're of their time but actually you know, that they are uh, probably the fastest thing you could wear to go downhill. You know, And some of them, they do, they do look fantastic. And I still, I still love looking at the riders wearing because it's just, you know, a, a burst of colour. They look really good. They look really business-like in my eyes. Um, so the plan is to do uh, 100 riders. Uh, probably got three-quarters of the way there, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way there. There's some that I'm still trying to, to nail down. Tomac is one of them. Tinkerwaras I'd like to get something from. Uh, uh, some of them, like I was saying, uh, Cedric Gracia had the, the muscle suit, the same as Cipollini, because they were both Cannondale, Seiko. Um, but he's auctioned his off. And Caroline had one too. Chasson, she had one too, but I don't know where hers is. And Philip Parakis. Remember Philip Parakis? Philip Parakis was sponsored by Day and Easy... He was the first guy really to wear the full-body armour. And I think the Americans used to call him the beetle or the bug because he looked, he looked, like, a suit, he looked like a suit of armour. But actually, it was really, really cool design. Some of the... You know, he had things on the, on the back of his calves, like Mercury, the wing messenger. Uh, and he was sponsored by uh, Dainese and diesel. And he just looked fantastic. And, and he had more than one of these suits. But again, you know, he said, I, I got in touch with him. I haven't got them anymore. You know, I don't know where they are. And I think actually... You probably took them back and they're in a museum somewhere. Um, so I'm constantly searching for these things, you know. So if anyone sees anything interesting, you know, please get in touch. Um, some people have come out of the woodwork, you know, like I oh, know so and so has got a has got a Steve Pete's jersey or whatever. And, and mechanics actually, the mechanics seem to have boxes under their beds that they've just that they've just sort of borrowed from the riders down the way, you know. Um, I mean I've got Miles Rockwell skin suit, skinsuit, skin suit, nineteen ninety six, you know, and, and he was like hot shot then, you know, on the, the Reebok Eliminators and stuff like that. Giovanni Bernazzi, I went to to Italy to to visit her and she 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 kept practically everything. So she had the Reebok Eliminator skin suit, the, the vest, the little bib that the riders wore, she had her, all of her um, speed record suits you know, when they used to race in the snow down in Lizark just to, for, for maximum speed she still had that and the bikes and you know that, for me that was just amazing You know, these are sort of museum pieces and actually there is a museum I've just found out in, in Holland where the guys mm-hmm. got the jerseys and the bikes so I think I need to visit him as well uh, the biggest problem actually is once I've got the jersey and photographed it is actually to get the guys to to, to um, you know especially if they're abroad these guys are so busy, just to get the story from them, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult. I'd say Tinker and Tomac are the main, my main targets at the moment. I can't really think of anyone else. Yeah, I mean, I've got Sean Palmer, I've got Steve Peat, I've got, um, I mean, Greg, Greg Minard. I've got a jersey of his, an amazing Alpine Stars jersey, which is a one-off jersey, where they discovered a way to print with metal. And that's when he's racing on the Honda team. So the, the, the actual Honda on his Alpine-sized jersey is printed in, in metal. You know. And it's, it was just a one-off thing for charity that he raced in Fort William in 2005. It just so happens I was there. So I've got action pictures of him in that jersey. I've got pictures of the jersey, because uh, Martin Whiteley sent me the jersey. And I've also got the original designer's artwork which is an interesting thing just to, to look at. So there'll be other things as, as, you know, uh, to go around the story of the jersey, other images, whatever I can find that fits in with it. I mean, I've got a lot of shots of the riders as well, but it, it, the, actually the hard, one of the hardest parts is um, it's actually uh, deciding that it is the right jersey because some of these guys, they must have ridden two or three jerseys in one season. Yeah, it might drop a sponsor, or it might be, this is a UK, uh, you know, Kona jersey. This is a North American Kona jersey. So there's a lot of sort of research to do to, to find those things out. Um, but as I've, as I've probably said, you know, I'm an out-and-out magazine guy, so the book publisher thing is like a different world to me. And it is a different world anyway, you know. Um, I know plenty of designers. I know plenty of sub-editors. Uh, it's just that... Um, I'm not going to actually speak to anyone until I've actually collated all of the raw material is done and dusted. It's on my drives and it's ready to go. Um, I might actually knock up a, a rough book design myself just so I can see how it will flow and then uh, hand it out to someone that knows how to use InDesign because I really don't have much of a clue when it comes to stuff like that. That's what I mean You know about about leaving it to people who really have got a flair for stuff like that. I spoke to a guy called Swifty, and, and Swifty is a guy that designed all the acid jazz, uh, record labels and stuff like that, you know, he's, he's an amazing guy, and I just I speak to him about, you know, he, he actually designs uh, the stuff for Hackney GT, because Russ is a DJ that runs Hackney, and Swifty's, you know, entrenched in the music scene, so I thought, oh, it'd be really nice to get him to design my book, because it would look so good. And I just, I saw him at a jazz all day. And he doesn't know me, and you know, I was just chatting, and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I can do it. And, and I was just about to walk, walk away and he said, but I, yeah, I charge, I've got to let you know, I charge a bit more than other designers. I was like, yeah, noted, <laughs> you know. So we'll see, we'll see how it comes out. But I'm pretty, pretty stoked about it. It is taking a long time, but I'm dragging my feet, and That's that's me though. You know, it, it's when, the, when it kicks in, the inspiration kicks in, I'll get on it, and, and you know, it, it peaks and troughs, yeah.
1: You've worked as a photographer for quite a long time, mm. uh, and we all know that this is a quite hectic lifestyle. How do you balance work and and mm. private life or family life? Mm.
2: Well, before I had kids, my wife was probably way more than more than me. You know, we, we only saw each other like you know a day or a couple of days a week because she worked for a sports marketing company. So she was always abroad, and I was actually very active, shooting World Cups and things like that. So I was away. So that wasn't really an issue, and I think I made I made a decision to try and shoot much more domestically once we moved out of London and you know and started a family. Um, and also, I think sometimes the travel can actually might you know get a little bit uh, wearing? Um, I don't mind driving to Belgium. That's not a big deal. But you know airports are not the best place ever. Um, but I've never really had a problem with it. You know, luckily I've got a very understanding wife, uh, and I don't. I wasn't away from my children that much as they were growing up. You know, and other guys. I mean, I think more. Um, you know, you get press guys who. Who might go to the Middle East, or the, you know, and they're there for months on end, and then that would be a, a Skype or a FaceTime thing. Well, I, I'm not away f- for stretches at a time; probably, probably a week, two weeks would be the maximum. So it never became a real issue, you know. We, it, it never became a thing we disagreed about. So. Yeah, lucky.
1: What are you afraid of?
2: Generally, anywhere in the realm, in, of, photography. In realm of photography, or, or,
1: or business, and or you well, know guess, kind of whole thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I think for me, and I can see it. it's it, you become um, irrelevant, you know, and and it's inevitable. Um, you know, I look at. Uh, I guess, I guess you have to be like a, a David Bailey type of character. You know, to to have that amount of um, the accolades and success at a fairly young age, and then because of what he shoots, his legend is is there forever. You know, so he can actually be eighty and still shoot and stuff like that. For me, it's different because what we do is a very physical thing. You know, I I can't run up and down a mountain with a backpack on like I used to, and I'm not sure now I want to. You know. so it's more—it's like, more that when you know that you can, you know, that you can still get the images and you still have the ideas, but other people don't really know that because they judge you on how you look. You know, it's—it's—it's. It's, it's, I think it's the nature of creative work in some respects, where you know, um, the guys, the art editors, they want to work with the, the bright young things that have got these these ideas. You know, and. It will forever be that way it 's just taking it on the chin um, so it 's more more about it 's not a fear it 's more of a a realization that the inevitable will happen you know um, and it 's frustrating to be honest you know when when actually you know that uh, that you 'll be ultra reliable and professional and get the job done but that 's not quite what some of them want you know they want a good laugh and and a few pictures at the end of it yeah but apart from no nothing else really no, no not especially I think i think i don't think i've really considered it i you know i don't um i don't dwell on that too much uh you know i just figured that the phone eventually would stop ringing we'll see <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> Um, if you could go back to your twenty-year-old self, mm. uh, what would you, what advice would you give? Well, bearing in mind I didn't start when I was twenty. Oh yeah, maybe I did a bit, bit later than that. But um, uh, I'd say watch your backgrounds. Always watch your backgrounds, because we know that people who take pictures don't until they realise, or they're told. They don't watch their backgrounds. Uh, and I think also with that, there's a, there's a moment where, where the penny drops, you know? And I could, you sort of see it with people who are taking pictures, you know, you see, they take pictures, you know, two years, two years, five years, and all of a sudden, I get it. And the, and the penny's dropped and, and they, become, they become their voice. You know, they've got their voice. Um, but, I would say, in that respect, to a young one, yeah, shoot, shoot with your own emotion, really, you know, try and tell the stories that are personal to you that that mean something to you um, and everyone goes on about having a, having a style, but it 's not really you know you, you know you could um you could tilt your camera, but that's not really a style, you know. You could put a fisheye lens on or something like that, but that's more of a, a gimmick. It's not, really a, a, it's not really a voice, you know, and it's, I think it's more about finding this, for want of a better word, this look, where people see a picture and they know it belongs to you, you know. And I, you know there's people out there, you can see their work, and you don't need to see the byline. You just know it's that guy... That woman that took that picture. Um, I think striving towards that because it's not easy, uh, and also I think at twenty, you know, your thoughts aren't aligned anyway. You know, but but some are. Some some kids, you know, have have got this this sort of intensity. But but if you if you mean by the fact that would would I recommend anyone become a photographer at twenty? Well, I'd say yeah, because we need them. You know, there's still a lot of stuff to be to be documented. I don't think I'll ever go away. I think the medium will change, but the method and the and the uh, and the incentive and the need to show people will remain. Yeah, so I'd say um, get your invoices in on time. You know, things like that, things that things that basically it's all out there. You know, it's it's basically if you want to start your business, you know, you could click into Google or YouTube, and you could download invoice templates. You can do all these things that I had to uh, ask. In some respects, you know, I just didn't know about these things. It's really weird because I mean, um, the easiest part for me, and I think it's the same for most guys, is was pressing the shutter you know being there and making a picture everything around it that's the hard part i think uh you know the the uh so-called networking and and just keeping abreast of everything that's the hardest bit and that's the biggest part of it you know and even now i realize that, that i'm not super good at that but i accept that that's me personally that's how i am you know Whereas other guys are really good at it. Um, I've had I've had no other job other than being a journalist or a photographer. So you get some people that would come out of business school or another job where they understand the marketing part of it. So I think they've got a head start, you know. Especially now, it's it's pretty it's it's free to market yourself, you know. If I think about when I was when you had to get a thousand business cards printed, because that was the minimum number, I'm gonna be left with You know, six hundred business cards. That's going to cost a lot of money to get those things. Now, you know, the the internet is at your fingertips. Yeah. But still, you know, it's 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 about making that impression. I think you know. Um, I think when you're 20, you've got loads of energy, so you can actually you can be anywhere. You can, you know, you can you can burn the candle at every end. So there's no reason why you shouldn't just be out there doing doing pictures all the time. get a, get huge, you know, a body of work together. Yeah.
1: Cool. Finally, last question.
2: Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, my website is warphotos.com. W-A-U-G-H photos with a P-H, dot com. Um And from there, there are various links to my, my social places. I'm always on there. Uh, being irreverent mostly, uh, but I do have a photo page on Facebook um, and Insta, which is Jeff_War on Instagram. Most of my photo, uh, my cycling photography, or basically things related to that, tend to be on Instagram. Facebook is more of a, a jokey place where I hang out. Um, I'm not so much of a Twitter man. I'll, I'll be on Twitter a bit, but I'm, you know, again, Instagram for photographers. It's the one, isn't it? So that's, that's the one I tend to gravitate towards. Um, and there's also uh, at Dirty Jerseys, which is the Dirty Jerseys uh, Instagram feed, where you'll see alternate retro jerseys and retro action shots of mountain biking. Yeah. Do you know what time the Jersey Project will <laughs> come to fruition? Yeah. Or just a rough... I really, really want to do it this year because I feel I feel quite bad that I've said you know the first year I was so excited and I said oh it'll be out just before Christmas and um and then I, I got a bit disheartened you know I got a bit discouraged by the sort of lack of response not from from punters because they were they were like When's the book coming out but more from people who, who just weren't keeping their promises shall we say uh and then and that tailed over into, into the following year so now it's it's two years now um but I've actually got a spark on now. I'm actually on it now. I'm, I'm, I'm shooting and I'm writing. And, uh, you know, I could, if I put my finger out, I can have the the bones of it, the, you know, done um, definitely before June. And then if I can't get, if I can't get it out before Christmas, if it's ready by June, then I really just need to give it all up, don't I, you know? Uh, but I'd say, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at Realistically August I'd say. Yeah. Thank you
1: and good luck with the book.
2: Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Waterproof Cover Podcast. You can find photos and links associated with this episode at cyclephotos.co.uk slash waterproof cover. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast listening software. If you liked it, please leave a review on iTunes, it will help others to find it. You can find me at CyclePhotos on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. See you next time.